0: Three triples out. 92.3 FM. The following program is in English.
1: L'chaim. Thank
2: you. You're tuned in to Lachaim,
3: To Life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother.
4: Shalom Aleichem, welcome back to LaChaim, to life, Jewish life and more. On the 14th of June 2021, 45 years and 10 days after that miraculous only Israel Operation Yonatan rescue mission of 102 Jews, Israelis and Air France crew hostages from Entebbe. My guest tonight is Major Rummy Sherman, the operations officer of the rescue mission under the command of Yoni Netanyahu, the older brother of Bibi Netanyahu, and most sadly, the only Israeli military fatality on the mission, Baruch Dayan HaAmet. The Israel Connections' David Schulberg has another Mythbuster for us. Justin Amler has put pen to paper with another brilliant piece, Jews in Israel, not related. Alex First reviews the French film Perfumes, now showing at the Classic and Lido Cinemas. And guess what? Exploring Israel with Effie is a scratching today, as Effie is doing what he does best, being an ambassador for Israel, guiding a very lucky group of tourists. You can still have an Effie fix with his live Zoom tour for Chabad Ira last Sunday, which is on my Facebook page. First up, Maury Frankel's guest is former Mayor of Ira, Jamie Hines, continuing our discussion on the ABC's Hostile Bias Against Israel. Jamie had an excellent article in Yesterday's Age and Sydney Morning Herald. You're tuned into Lachaim on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z. Stick around. Jamie Hyams has always been very much a
5: community minded person. He served four terms as a councillor on the Glen Ira City Council and was mayor three times. He's on the board of the Glen Ira Adult Learning Centre and has had a long association with Maccabi Victoria. He has appeared on Sky News and is a staff writer for the Australia-Israel Review. Jamie is a senior policy analyst at the Australia-Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, also known as AJAC, where he has worked since 2000. Jamie, welcome to L'Chaim. Could you give our audience an overview of the Australia-Israel and Jewish Affairs Council and then tell us what your role as a senior policy analyst entails? Sure, so
6: The Australia-Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, we regard ourselves as Australia's prime Jewish public affairs organisation or or think tank. So we we try to put out accurate information and important information about matters of concern to the Jewish community, whether that be Israel, um, what's going on in the Middle East, anti-Semitism, racism in Australia um, and various other issues of concern to the, the Jewish community. We bring over speakers when we can, obviously not so much during COVID. We take groups to Israel, again, not so much during COVID. We put out a, the magazine you mentioned, the Australia's Round Review. We also have a, a website. So we basically do what we can to get accurate information out there. My role as senior policy analyst, everyone sort of does a bit of everything, so I do a bit of writing. Um, and in fact, I had articles in the Sydney Morning Herald in the AGE yesterday about the ABC and the need for an independent compliance procedure and also contribute to the review. I do a bit of research and, and various other things. I take the groups to Israel and, you know, sort of just chipping on the general activities that we do. And it's a very interesting and at times frustrating, but generally rewarding job. Well, thanks, Jamie. That
5: was certainly very informative. If we could now focus on the trauma and truth-telling episode of the ABC program Q&A, sure. which screened in May this year mm-hmm. and featured a segment focusing on the Israel-Hamas conflict. From your perspective... How did the segment tell the truth about the conflict? Perhaps you could start with the panel's composition and follow up with some of the supposed
6: truths. Sure. Well, what it mainly told the truth about was the way the ABC puts together the show Q&A, because it does have a history of being barely tilted. But this was an extreme example. What you had in a show that was advertised as being in part about the Israel-Hamas conflict that, that occurred last May, what you had was Randa Abdul-Fattah, Fatah, is a pro-Palestinian activist. She regards herself as Palestinian. She's a, a very staunch activist for the cause. You also had Jennifer Robinson, who is a human rights lawyer who has appeared for Palestinians before the International Criminal Court. Then you had Ed Husick, who's a Labor member of federal parliament. And there was Mitch Tambo, who's an indigenous musician who doesn't know much about the, the Palestinian conflict, as you mentioned during the show. And to balance all that, we had one person who was Dave Sharma, who is a federal MP on the Liberal side. So he was basically there to counter or to, to balance, I guess, Ed Houston. They had him, and he's a former Australian ambassador to Israel, and he's knowledgeable about the matter. But as he himself said during the program, he wasn't there to put Israel's case. Now, the program also claimed that they invited the acting Israeli ambassador, Pallad, to appear on the show. But what they actually offered him to do was sit in the audience and perhaps ask a question. So, of course, he refused, and then the ambassador would. So what you had was an incredibly biased panel. You had, especially Rand Adolf adda was prepared to to make all sorts of ridiculous claims about Israel being the apartheid state and deliberately killing civilians and all sorts of things like that. And when Dave Sharma tried to put the other side quite moderately and reasonably, you know, she tried to talk all over the top of him and tell him he was lying, whereas in fact she was the one who was saying things that weren't true. And um, Hamish McDonald wasn't really trying to rein her in, as, as a host probably should have been doing. Ed Hughes said that he felt Australia should recognise a Palestinian state, so he was obviously taking that side as well. And Which Tambo admitted he didn't know much about it, but felt that Israel should stop killing Palestinians. And then you had Jennifer Robinson who was backing up everything that Randa Adolf Adler was saying. So it was incredibly slanted. Dave Sharma justifiably felt uncomfortable being cast as the Israel representative when he's a member of our federal parliament. So who he's representing is the government of Australia, not the government of Israel.
5: For those of you who didn't see that particular episode of Q&A, it can be easily found on the internet and uh, it reveals an astonishing level of anti-Israel bias within Australia's national broadcaster. What was Ajax's response to the program and how did the ABC deal with it?
6: Well, we put in a complaint. The ABC has a complaints procedure and it's called its um, Audience and Consumer Affairs Unit. It's internal to the ABC, so it's not independent by any means and that probably explains the response we got. So we put in the complaint in the main... The main thrust of our complaint, if you like, was that the ABC hadn't abided by its code of conduct, which is meant to abide by and it's using current affairs. And one of the things in there, one of the provisions in there says that the ABC should not unduly favour any perspective over any other perspective. And so we argued with obvious cause that they had in fact favoured one perspective over the other. Audience and Consumer Affairs came back to us quite quickly, which suggests they already had something, you know, written up and said that they hadn't unduly, and they emphasised the word unduly, they one perspective over another. They had a couple of people in the audience asking pro-Israel questions, which, of course, the panel could say anything they wanted to about. And they mentioned that Acting Ambassador Pallet had been asked. And they thought that, that Dave Sharma responded very well to the question. So, you know, this is clearly untenable. They've clearly breached their code of practice. They're clearly not prepared to admit they've breached their code of practice. And they've clearly illustrated why the complaints procedure needs to be independent. How do you see the ABC in general and the way that it
5: covers issues related to Israel?
6: The ABC in general tends to be quite biased against Israel. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a good example. You know, they've got correspondence over there, a good recent example. They cover the controversy over the house demolition in Sil 1, where a Palestinian house has been demolished by Israeli authorities and it was built without authorisation. At the same time, roughly the same time, there was a really big story going on in the Palestinian Authority areas where a Navy Palestinian Authority activist was arrested by Palestinian Authority police, and he was arrested in a very violent way, and he ended up dying of his injuries within an hour or so of being arrested. And there were huge demonstrations about that. And the ABC covered it sort of tangentially on news radio, but certainly it wasn't covered by their correspondent in their flagship news programs like AIM and PM, in the same way that the house demolition in Silwan was the controversy over the potential eviction of Palestinian residents in Sheikh Jarrah, you know, and all sorts of things that happen that favor the, a- the ABC's narrative on Israel, but, but are of much less significance than what was going on in the Palestinian Authority. Uh, we found that during the, the Hamas-Israel conflict, the ABC's coverage was very slanted, so they might have said the right thing occasionally, you know, but they certainly presented a Palestinian perspective far more and, and pro-Palestinian guests appeared far more often on their shows. That's it in a nutshell. That is how the ABC overall tends to approach the conflict. So, you know, we, we may get some of our people on ABC radio occasionally and they'll cover, you know, if, if you listen hard enough, they will make most of the relevant points some of the time, but they certainly make the points that favour the Palestinian narrative and the Palestinian perspective far more often than those that favour the Israeli side. Mm.
5: You mentioned earlier that you had an opinion piece in Yesterday's Age, it was also in the Sydney Morning Herald, yeah. on the process the ABC has to deal with complaints. mm mm-hmm. Could you tell us briefly what that process is and are there examples of other countries handling complaints in a different way, a more effective
6: way? Yeah, well, the process is they have their their ANCA, their Audience and, and Customer Affairs Department or unit, and they say it's independent. What they don't say so often is that it then reports back to ABC management, so it's not independent. Quite a lot of complaints, as the ABC itself acknowledges, are sent straight back to the program. And the program deals with them if, if they consider the complaints to be minor. Those complaints that are dealt with by ANCA, they, obviously they refer it back to the journalist or the, the producer who produced the content in the first place. And then they'll make a finding of whether they agree that it complies with the code of practice or not. And on the vast majority of cases, they find that it did comply with the code of practice. Now we, we find that unsatisfactory. We think it should be independent. Like there's a lot of, and not because the ABC is a media unit, but because the ABC is, is funded by the taxpayers. So, you know, unlike the commercially owned newspapers, television stations, radio stations and so on, the ABC is funded by the taxpayer so it is accountable to the taxpayer to make sure that it does comply and adhere to its code of practice. So we think there should be an independent body in place the same way there's a telecommunications ombudsman or or a banking ombudsman or or all sorts of different types of um, independent accountability organisations. There should be one for the ABC as well. Now, other countries have done this sort of thing, countries like Canada, the Netherlands, some of the Scandinavian countries have done something like that. A lot of, you know, th- those are the countries that have their own government-funded broadcaster, the same way the ABC is. So, you know, if you don't like the ABC's findings from A, from a and CA at the moment, you can appeal it to ACMA, the Australian Communications Media Authority, and they can issue a finding. They're not as well-resourced as they could be. It does take them a long time to, to come back with anything. And on occasions when they've come back with a finding against the ABC, the ABC has printed a little note and then put out a statement saying we disagree with the act of finding, and that's it. So you know we want something that not only is independent and quite rigorous and can possibly even launch own source investigations rather than waiting for a complaint, like the Victorian Ombudsman, for example. But we also want it to have real teeth, so that if the ABC is found to have transgressed, then there are consequences to make sure it doesn't do it again. Because one other thing we found from the ABC's internal complaints process is that a finding can be made in our favour, for example there was a finding made that it was incorrect for the ABC to call Gaza occupied, And then, you know, a little while later, a couple of years later, they did the same thing again. So we complained again. And the the finding came back that, no, it was okay for them to say that because that's what the United Nations said. So, you know, they're not even bound by their own findings.
5: Yes. How are the panels in the overseas countries uh, constituted? Who appoints them?
6: That that I can't tell you. (laughs) Oh,
5: okay.
6: It'd be interesting to know Yeah, I mean, you'd you'd certainly want it to be, you wouldn't want them to start appointing people like, you know, former employees of the ABC who are still, (laughs) um, you know, who who are still loyal to the ABC. You'd want it to be appointed at arm's length, preferably by, not by the ABC, but by the government or an independent body and make sure that these are people who have expertise in journalism, but are also completely um, neutral and independent Mm. And, and objective, I guess, is the main thing.
5: Yes, uh, in a world of increasing anti-Israel bias, Ajax's role is even more important today, and it deserves the community's full support. Jamie, thank you so much for appearing on Lafayette. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
4: Welcome to the Mythbusters. Just the facts, ma'am.
7: Cardella area. Uh, we
8: have around five uh, cubic meter per hour, which is supplied by the Israeli company. They use it for crops, agriculture, and also they use it for household uh, usage. The demand is much more higher. You need more than 12 to 15 cubic meters per hour. Three times as much. Three times as much. Siad
6: says the restrictions placed on Palestinians fuel tensions with the Jewish settlers who take much more water.
3: Lately, there has been a lot of concern being expressed over the ABC's anti-Israel agenda, with a stacked episode of Q&A last month having led to a number of complaints, which the ABC has tried to push back. Unfortunately, a specious episode of the ABC's foreign correspondent program, titled The Sinking Sea, that was screened last month, has been overlooked. The beginning of the sinking sea gave us a look at the vast rapid changes that have been caused by the drying up of the Dead Sea, through the eyes of geologists who have made this issue their life's work. However, as you heard in the piece of propaganda at the start, Eric Troshek, ABC's outgoing Middle East correspondent, was speaking with a Palestinian farmer who was complaining that the Palestinians don't get enough water for their agricultural needs, while Israeli settlers get as much as they want. This farmer happens to live in the village of Kardala, which is in Area C of the West Bank, which is under full control of the Israeli authorities according to the Oslo Accords. The allocation of water to Palestinian residents under Israeli jurisdiction was determined in the framework of the Oslo Accords according to population size. There would be no water crisis if Europe and the Palestinian Authority would not be orchestrating a large-scale migration of people into Area C, preempting a Palestinian state and exploiting a contrived water shortage as a political weapon against Israel. Israel provides approximately 70 million cubic metres per year of water to the Palestinian Authority in Judea and Samaria, even though the water agreement signed in the Oslo framework allocates a much smaller quantity of only 23.6 million cubic metres per year for the so-called West Bank. If the Palestinian Authority so desired... The residents of the village of Kardala could easily be living in the neighbouring village of Bardala located in Area B, which is under Palestinian Authority jurisdiction and enjoying sufficient water supplies thanks to Israel. The Palestinian Authority long ago slated large swathes of Area C for takeover and has poured tremendous resources into illegal activity designed to support the very specious claims presented by Chorchik in the ABC documentary. This includes creating a system through which water is illegally siphoned off from the Israeli national water grid and piped to the fields for irrigation. A practice so widespread that Jewish communities, where citizens pay a premium price for their water, have major problems with water pressure that actually result in their sometimes having no water in summer months due to uncontrolled pressure drops, reflux contamination, and salination caused by the substandard piping systems used to steal water. Yes, it's definitely time for us to do something serious about this incessant stream of anti-Israel bias being spewed out by the ABC. This Mythbuster was by David Schulberg, presenter of the Israel Connection with an X, located on YouTube, and convener of the website JMedia.online, j-m-e-d-i-a online, dot J-M-E-D-I-A. online, which provides news from media sources around Australia of potential interest to the Jewish community.
9: I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. Citing the pro-Hamas Lebanese daily al-Akbar, the Times of Israel reported on Tuesday that Egyptian mediators are optimistic that Israel and Hamas will soon implement the first stage of a prisoner exchange. Anonymous sources said Hamas would trade information on the fate of the bodies of two Israeli soldiers held by Hamas in Gaza since 2014 and two living Israeli civilians for the release of an unspecified number of female security prisoners. Citing Channel 12 television, a Jewish news syndicate report carried in the Jewish press says Israel's security establishment has begun to sieve cryptocurrency wallets belonging to Hamas. The terror organization is attempting to raise funds for rehabilitating its damaged military arm via virtual currencies such as Bitcoin in an effort to bypass the conventional banking system in the wake of the recent clashes with Israel. Public Security Minister Omer Barlaev told IDF Radio on Tuesday that Israel wants foreign aid to Gaza dispersed through a voucher system via the United Nations as a safeguard. He said Prime Minister Naftali Bennett envisaged a mechanism where what will go in, in essence, would be food vouchers or vouchers for humanitarian aid and not cash that can be taken and used for developing weaponry to be welded against the state of Israel. He did not rule out continued Qatari aid. The Health Ministry reported on Tuesday that 730 new cases of the coronavirus were reported in Israel on Monday, the largest number of new cases in a single day since late March. The percentage of tests which came back positive rose to 1.33%, the highest since May 31st. It was announced on Monday that a significant number of negative tests performed in the last month at Ben Gurion Airport had been counted twice, nearly doubling the real positive results. The Jerusalem Post reports the Knesset has approved extending the COVID 19 restrictions regarding air travel. Israel National News reports health ministry experts are split regarding statistics that the number of people with immunity from natural infection who have tested positive recently is less than one percent, while 40 percent of those who have tested positive were vaccinated. Citing Channel 12, the post reports are strike by administrative staff at 30 public hospitals. They're demanding that thousands of positions be opened to keep pace with the increasing workload. The Supreme Court ruled on Monday that courses and institutions of higher education can be gender separate, giving a boost to efforts to increase the numbers of Haredi religious or ultra-Orthodox men and women obtaining university and college degrees en route to the workforce. The sector prefers to learn separately in line with requirements for modesty. Responding to petitions against the separation, the court ruled that female lecturers must also be allowed to teach male-only classes if they so wish, and that preventing them from doing so is discriminatory and illegal. The Times of Israel reports the court rejected petitions against a law passed last year to establish the position of alternate prime minister, which has been maintained by the current government, to anchor a rotation agreement in law. The nine-judge panel ruled that the law does not amount to the denial of the basic democratic characteristics of the state of Israel and therefore does not warrant judicial intervention. Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit has ordered suspension of the criminal investigation into the deadly stampede during the April 30th Lagbaomer festivities at Mount Merron in order to allow for the State Commission of Inquiry to take the lead. The disaster has been blamed on improperly installed ramparts and walkways. Mandelblit said the commission could get priority over other probes because it has a wide mandate. The Times of Israel cited the Israel Democracy Institute think tank as saying the commission's report and testimony it gathers cannot be used as evidence in criminal proceedings. The probe by the state controller's office continues. Against the backdrop of the tragedy, the Post reports Temple Mount activist Yehuda Etzion suggested on Tuesday reviving the ancient Barclays Gate Passage Wing under the women's section of the western wall of the temple in Jerusalem to replace the deteriorating Mugabe Gate Bridge, which Jews and other non-Muslims currently use to enter the holy site. The plan would be to first excavate the western wall prayer space, creating a permanent staircase leading up to the gate. Member of Knesset Miri Regev submitted a proposal to the Knesset on Sunday for urgent construction work on the bridge. Czech Foreign Minister Jakub Kulhanik said Monday that his country will be the latest not to participate in the Durban Review Conference in New York in September, citing concerns about anti-Semitism and targeting Israel. Dubbed Durban 4, the conference is meant to mark the 20th anniversary of the World Conference on Racism in the South African City, where Israel was the only country singled out. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com.
4: Well done, Maury Frankel with Jamie Himes. What a great on-point interview. Followed by the Perthic Mythbusters with the Israel Connections' David Schulberg. Time for a song and I'll be back with Major Rummy Sherman and Operation Yonatan, 45 years ago. Don't go away. You're listening to Chaim to Life on 92.3 FM 3 Triple Z
7: On the 27th of June 1976, an Air France A300 Airbus bound for Paris from Tel-Aviv was hijacked by Palestinian and German terrorists after a brief stop in Athens. With 254 passengers on board, including many Israeli citizens, the plane was diverted to Africa. It eventually ended up in Uganda, then run by the ruthless dictator Idi Amin, who was in league with the Palestinians. Amin placed armed guards on the plane while the hostages were herded into a disused airport terminal building. Negotiations to secure their release began, with the Palestinians demanding the release of 53 Arab and German prisoners. Over the next few days, all the hostages, except the French aircrew and 95 Jewish passengers, were released. Anxious relatives invaded the residence of the Israeli Prime Minister to urge him to negotiate. But the Israeli government had no intention of doing so. And on the evening of the 3rd of July, Operation Thunderbolt was launched.
4: Ten days ago, the 4th of July, was the 45th anniversary of the mission where the Israel Defence Forces, 100 commandos plus aircrew and support personnel, carried out the amazing, miraculous rescue mission 90 Jews and Israelis, along with the 12 Air France flight crew, the mission known as Operation Entebbe, aka Operation Thunderbolt, aka and better known as Operation Yonatan, named after Yoni Netanyahu, the older brother of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Yoni, who led the mission, was the only IDF casualty. My guest today is Major Rami Sherman, who was in the elite IDF unit Sayeret Maktal, that along with the IAF, the Israel Air Force undertook this successful mission that still sends shivers of pride down my spine. I first met Major Rumi Sherman in Melbourne a few years back when he was on a speaking tour presenting the Operation Yonatan story. Major Rami Sherman, welcome to Lechayim to life. It's great to touch base with
2: you again. Well, thank you. It's an honor for me to come again, even by Zoom, to Melbourne. Rami, your personal experience of the
4: Operation Yonatan story really is to life. On June 27, 1976, an Airfront's Airbus A300 jet airliner with 248 passengers on board took off from Lod Airport, destination Paris. It stopped off in Athens where some passengers departed and some new passengers boarded the flight. Amongst the boarding passengers were two German and two Palestinian terrorists who smuggled weapons on board, which was a lot easier to do back in uh, 1976, taking over the plane with the eventual landing destination, Entebbe, with lots of demands. The non-Jewish passengers were released, which was a blessing as they were able to provide the Mossad and the IDF with invaluable information about the terrorists and the situation at the terminal where the hostages were being kept. Rami, I know it would normally take you an hour or more to tell us about Operation Yonatan. In a shortened timeframe, in your capacity as operations officer of the unit being involved throughout the week preparing the unit for the operation, please take us through the political decisions to undertake the rescue mission, the idea of preparation for the mission, and the successful execution of this daring mission with the
2: complete element of surprise. Okay, thank you. First of all, to you that you opened me and gave me a chance to, to share. No, it's our honor. It's our <laughs> this honor. week we can divide it for four models. The first day was an hijacking, which somehow during the 70s was quite a lot of terror attack and hijacking, not only against Israel, And the Israeli government thought, it's a question of Fre- French government to solve it. Yeah. Nevertheless, the only thing what they thought, it's uh, to send a general, Gandhi, to France to see what would happen with the Israeli passengers, that all. Nothing was really seriously about the operation. The second stage came on Tuesday morning as this week became a Jewish problem, not only Israeli problem, because the selection that the terrorists did the separation between the Jews, Austrians, the Israeli Jews, Austrians, and the rest. Majority of the passengers, they were non-Jewish originally. They were from a different part of the world. And as the Jewish world understood that 4,000 kilometers from Israel, Israel can't save their life, many times I met people and they asked me, what Israel thought would be the effect of this situation? The same model came when the Israeli government understood from now on it's a question of the Israeli government to take response. Why? Because on Wednesday evening, the French government sent it to Air France plan, and they took back to Paris the 140 non-Jews. Some of them, they were Jews, but mostly non-Jews, ostriches. And from Wednesday night, Israel understood it's a question of Israel to do something. But it was a very difficult situation to decide what to do. Wednesday night till Thursday morning, the government set to discuss the situation. The chief of staff, Motogur, was against military action. Simon Peres, the defense minister on those days, pushed very strong for military action. He believed that we can succeed, even though that is 4,000 kilometers away from Israel. And it's very short time because the terrorists gave an ultimatum. Till Thursday noon, if they not accept what they asked, they told to French government and to Israeli government that they will start to kill the hostages. But Shimon Peres believed that we could reach what we planned. Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister, he was in the middle. And at the end, he pushed to open negotiation with the terrorists. It wasn't the first time of accept what the terrorists asked, but the policy was very strong of not talking with the terrorists. In '68, when the terrorists hijacked an Al flight from Rome to Tel Aviv, the plane landed in Algiers, and after some weeks, Israel released terrorists, and the arrest of the passengers, they were back to Israel. It wasn't the first time, but the policy was against Rami, the, uh, Rami, with uh,
4: yes. Prime Minister Rabin agreeing to negotiate, that was also part of uh, a delaying tactic to to, uh, uh, to assess
2: everything even further. I don't think that is 100% true. Okay. <laughs> on Thursday morning, the Israeli government accept on one voice to open negotiation. Okay. Later on, as the military plan came as a real plan, they use it as a trick. It's right. not on Thursday morning. Okay. I talked with his secretary just lately and he said, it's Hak Rabin, and all the government accept negotiation in a true way and the most important, and I can add one important thing, because it's a Jewish meaning. He said in the front of all the ministers, the life of the ostriches is more important than any other reason. And for saving their life, we should release terrorists, and that's okay. And I think it's a very Jewish spirit okay. to, of saving life. So sure. later on, they choose another way of saving life, a military action. But that is the next days, when the force model AI, the preparation of the operation, we were back from Sana'a because we thought it's, at the first days that is not really a serious situation. the question of French government. And from Thursday evening till Saturday noon, less than 48 hours, all the operation prepared. And that is a miracle. And in many cases, you can see the miracle during this week. I'm not going now to open that. It's too short. Okay. Rami, um,
4: when the operation was a go, well, initially a go, and uh, the Hercules, the commandos are on the Hercules. There's a hospital flight as well. You had a black Mercedes to uh, imitate Idi Amin, the Mercedes and everything. There was a stopover at Sheikh to refuel, and Yoni
2: Netanyahu spoke to his soldiers. What did he say? He said two important things, maybe three. First, he said that he believed that we can achieve and bring all the hostages back home safely. He had on that that the question of release the hostages is how we surprise the terrorists and the Ugandan at the airport. Because the question of who is shooting first, it's a very critical point of fighting with the terrorists. We knew it, unfortunately, from our experience. The second thing, what he said, was the Jewish meaning of the operation. He said, it's a mutual responsibility of every Jew to help the other. It's a very important for every Jew to look at the other Jew situation and give a hand. And honestly, for me, it wasn't any meaning about this world when I was in Sharm I hear what he said. I grew up in a very opposite way of living the left movement of the kibbutz movement, away from any meaning clearly that we are Jew. It was very clear for us that we are Israeli. We are Zionist, but not a Jew. So I said, okay, he said, but for me, the most important is to bring the hostages safely home. Nothing more, nothing less of Jewish meaning. Just later, I was understood something more interesting in my life. My life changed from that, but it took me some years to, to understand it. As we landed in the, in the Entebbe and we drove towards the terminal, we stopped a few hundred meters before the main doors and we surprised the terrorists who were in the terminal, the Ugandan who were in the control tower and surround. And we surprised the Ugandan in the new airport. And we surprised, I can say myself, how that could be to be in the front doors of the terminal, 4,000 kilometers away from Israel. And nobody knew that the machine could land in Ontario. At nighttime. At, at, nighttime, land, nighttime, at midnight. Nighttime. Yes. I think that is the most important key for success. It took five to seven minutes when seven terrorists killed, about 20 Ugandan killed, unfortunately, two ostriches killed. One wounded very seriously. The next day, he was dying in Nairobi. And Yoni Netanyahu just went out to the car and pushed all the soldiers to run as quick as possible to where the main doors. He was shooting and fell down. But we knew that we have to run and not stop. As the fire was a bit slowed down, I came and took him to the medical plane. But after some minutes, closed his eyes. And then the last duty was to lead the hostages from the terminal to the plane, who waited to take them out. And that was the moment when, somehow, without prepare myself to, to such a situation, I hear a voice: "Rami, you save life of Jude." And I didn't know at that time, and I don't know now, for where this world awake. But the moment I felt that I am in a situation of saving life, me as a second generation of Holocaust survivor, I was so proud to be and take part in that operation. Most of my family, they were murdered in Poland. My father, shalom, had only one sister. She lived in Melbourne, Caulfield first. We grew up with a story about Melbourne. But when I was in Entebbe, I was proud that I can help to Jews. I always said at the end, I flew to Entebbe as a Israeli and I flew back from Entebbe as a Jew. But sometimes it's tough to understand that it took me 40 years to understand such a point.
4: Wonderful, wonderful. Rami, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said in the Knesset, the rescue mission was an operation of Jewish Brotherhood and Israeli courage. The statement is just as relevant today as the Jewish cause and the Israeli cause and the connection between the brotherhood and the bravery. And you just you just highlighted that with the transformation that you underwent. You left as an Israeli, go and rescue Jews and Israelis, and you came back as a Jew. I know, Rami, you think there were a number of heroes who played a part in this successful mission. Please, very briefly,
2: who were those heroes? I think the first one, and the most important, is the pilot. What they stretch in such a condition of the route and the plane. In that short time of preparation, they are the heroes of the operation. We, what we did, we could do in Tel Aviv or whatever, but what they did is unbelievable. So that is the first, and we have to remember, the commander of Israeli Air Force, Benny Pellet, and all the pilot and Shiki Shani, the commander of the C-130 plan, the heavy carrier plan. The second one, in my understanding, it's Michel Bacos, the captain of the flight, Air France, France plan. Yeah. He decided, and all the 12 Air decided, together with him, to stay with his passengers. To stay in Entebbe, while he had a chance to go back to Paris, he didn't know if the next day he will kill first by the terrorists, but he decided to stay with his passenger. And I think it's a very important message, especially for the young generation. Sometimes value is more important than personal interest. And the last I can say was it's Hakra At the end, many people help him to take a decision, but he was alone on the top of the pyramid. And he decided to take a risk to send 240 Israeli force pilots, doctors, and army force as me to Antepa. Without knowing what will be the result, without knowing how we can get some help in case we need, he decided to take. And I think that is one of the miracles. So many people give a hand, so many people help, but at the end, I can say sometimes in joke, sometimes maybe it's true. It is a situation when him were an extra hour. Him, Hashem, Hashem. Hashem. Rami, Rami, Bishanar
4: Baba, Australia and Melbourne next year. You're coming to Australia and Melbourne to tell your story again. I can listen to it for hours and we will have you back on Lachaim when that's going to eventuate. I want to thank you so much for joining us on uh, Lachaim today with your amazing personal story. And um, we'll have you back on Lachaim. And I, everyone should prepare themselves to come and hear Your story next year, Pesachnaa Bar, for Melbourne. Thank you. Thank you, Major bye bye. Sherman. Thank you, Major. Shalom,
2: Ramos. shalom, and be safe. Yeah. See you soon. Bye, bye, bye.
4: When you walk through a
0: storm, hold your hand up high. of love
1: Walk on
4: Love those two songs, Fontella Bass from 1965, Rescue Me, and the timeless Jerry and the Pacemakers, You'll Never Walk Alone, as was exemplified by Operation Yonatan's Major Rummy Sherman. He went on the rescue mission as an Israeli soldier and came back a Jew. Now for another gem from Justin Amler, followed by Alex first review of the film playing at the classic Alido cinemas, Perfumes. Hang around, I'll be back to close out tonight's Lachaim here on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z A
8: A leading Palestinian Authority official, Mohammed Shatayah, said on Friday that there was no relation between Israel and Jews. He also said that Jews, Israelites and Hebrew are different entities. He said the Jews today are Kaza Jews who joined Judaism in the 6th century. Now, just a reminder of who the Palestinian Authority are. They are the group that the world wants Israel to negotiate with. They are the ones whose leader... Mahmoud Abbas was elected in January 2005 for a four-year term and he's still serving as president, 11 years after his term expired. By the way, just for the record, that makes him a dictator. And they're also the group which teaches their children hatred and is steeped in anti-Semitic rhetoric, such as the Kaiser Jews story, which is what so many Jew haters use to try to delegitimize Jewish people. And by the way, they also pay their people the murder Jews, rewarding them with lifetime pensions and a great honor among their people. But it doesn't stop here. They claim Jesus, who would never have even known the term Palestine, was a Palestinian. They claim the Palestinians have a 5,000-year history in the land of Israel, with no evidence, of course. They claim the Bible says the Palestinians existed before Abraham, even though the word Palestine doesn't appear even once in it. And no, the Philistines are not the Palestinians. Every Jewish city that exists, they claim. Every Jewish story, they try to make it their own. It's called cultural and historical appropriation of the highest order. And the reason the Palestinians try to claim Hebron as their own, just as they try to claim Jerusalem as their own, or the Temple Mount as their own, is really quite simple. They have nothing of their own to claim. They have no ancient history in the land of Israel. They have no tombs of ancient Palestinian forefathers. They have no archaeological evidence of Palestinian cities or temples. They have no books or songs or literature. They have no documented reference of anything. Even Jerusalem is not mentioned once in the Quran. It's true there are people now who have come to be known as the Palestinians. But this is a recent event of just a few decades. Prior to 1948, the only reference to Palestinians was when talking about the Jews, who were known as Palestinians then. There's even a recorded soccer match between Australia and Palestine in 1939, where all the team members of the Palestinian soccer side were Jews. The Arabs, who were living in the Palestinian-mandated areas, were simply known as Arabs. All these efforts in the UN and UNESCO to claim Jewish holy sites is for two reasons alone. One, to legitimize the history of the Jews to the land of Israel and sever the ancient connection. And two, to supplement that world-documented history and replace it with a fictitious fairy tale giving some kind of historical legitimacy to a people who didn't exist in a country that never was. The support they receive in these world bodies has got nothing to do with historical accuracy and everything to do with attitudes towards Jews. There is a reason that the Palestinian Museum sits atop a lone hill, quiet and empty, where the only sound that can be heard is the whistling of the wind as it dances around the empty spaces and empty hallways. There's nothing to show because, well, there is nothing to show. This is an Amla, Lachaim to Life. A
1: show
0: that is really a show sends you out with a kind of a and you say,
1: as you go on
10: your way, that's With Alex first. Perfumes is a gently paced, delightfully nuanced French comedy about a woman with a nose for fragrances and her chauffeur. I speak of Anne Wahlberg, Emmanuel Devos, and Goulain Favre, Gregory Montel. Having been employed by Dior, She created some of the world's most popular perfumes, including J'adore. But now she works for an assortment of contract clients, often trying to find ways to mask unfavourable smells. She has a prickly relationship with her agent Jean, Pauline Moulin, who negotiates the deals for her. Fundamentally, Wahlberg is a loner, a diva, temperamental, and often viewed as cold and distant. Favre is a separated father of a nine-year-old girl about to turn 10, Leah Zelly Rickson. Since September 2006, he's worked as a chauffeur for a firm called Elite Driver, run by Arsene Pellessier, Gustave Cavern. Recently, Pellessier was about to let Favre go because he'd run up a series of speeding tickets but the latter pleaded to retain his job because he's in a court battle to secure custody of his daughter every other week, and that involves having to secure a larger flat. Policier relented and gave Favre his next assignment with Wahlberg without informing him that she'd already refused three other chauffeurs. That's because she's not easy to deal with and quite demanding. In the very early stages of their relationship, Wahlberg not only expects Favre to carry her bags and heavy suitcases to the car, she instructs him not to smoke, either before or during the time that he is in her company, along with helping her change the sheets on hotel beds where she stays, and telling clients who she's driven to see that she doesn't want to meet with them. All of these are expectations without a simple please or thank you. Little wonder then that Favre doesn't know what hit him. Regardless, Wahlberg prevails upon Palessier for Favre to be her only chauffeur and needing the money, Favre is left with no choice. At the same time, he's trying to navigate his relationship with his daughter. But the longer Favre works with Wahlberg, the more is revealed about her and a greater understanding between them develops. Perfumes has been beautifully written and sensitively put together by Gregory Magna. The story develops nicely and is well worth sticking with. The performances are first rate. Gregory Montel is excellent as the chauffeur trying to keep it all together. As good as the delivery of his lines is, it's his facial expressions and body movements that contribute greatly to his offering. So too Emmanuel DeVos, who slips comfortably into the role of the nose, often presenting as awkward or uncomfortable. As the movie progresses, we get to understand the hit her character has taken. I also appreciated the rough diamond showing of Gustave Cavern as the owner of the limousine service, and the setting that his meetings with Favre took place. Pauline Moline holds her own as Wahlberg's agent, not afraid of standing up to her client, while Zelly Rickson is plausible as Favre's daughter. I was also conscious of the mood music that helped portray what was going on at the time. So, plaudits to Gaston Roussel. Perfumes is a small movie with heart and scores a 7.5 out of 10. For more of Alex's reviews of theatre, musicals and movies, you can go to Theatre First Podcast and Movies First Podcast and or to the website I tell you what I Think.com.
4: And now for headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. Elbow Blast Boycotters. Support for Indigenous Aussies Urged. Game Over for Hitler app. Wheeler Center under fire over Free Palestine event. Tributes to radio star John O'Coleman. Australian Friends of Ariel Uni launched. Auschwitz Orchestra member mourned. Church of England to apologize for historic hate. Hope for a Hamas prisoner swap. Thousands rally in Washington to protest anti-Semitism. <laughs> To read more coverage of local, federal, and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle, and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne, or for weekly home delivery, subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.net.au. Have you heard the news? What did it say? That's it
1: for tonight's Lachaim.
4: What can I say, Murray's guest Jamie Himes takes it right up to the ABC with its anti-Israel bias, and deservedly so. Followed by David Schulberg's Mythbusters, also serving it up to the ABC's hostile anti-Israel agenda, The Sinking Sea. How about Justin Amler's Jews and Israel Not Related, straightening out and putting Palestinian history revisionism where it belongs. I won't say where, I don't want to get banned. Alex First with the French film Perfumes, playing at the classic in the Lido cinemas. And what can I say about Major Rummy Sherman with his Israels and Jewish World Operation Yonatan? It still sends shivers of pride and tears of joys through me. Only Israel. Next week, one of our guests will be Liz Davidson with a great little charity organisation, Our Kitchen Table, with their first ever online silent auction, raising funds to continue making things for four other charities, Prison Network, Project Dignity, Kahila Nitsan in conjunction with Father Bob and St Kilda Mums. I look forward to chatting to Liz about all that. Okay, you'll find in about 15 minutes, half an hour, a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3ZZZ.com.au. Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the Lachaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3 TripleZ, the Hebrew Hour Shabbat Shalom 3pm on Friday and the Yiddish Hour 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lachame, our email is lchaim 3 zzz at gmailcom Please consider becoming a member of the Jewish Group here at 3ZZZ for only $16, and for seniors, just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachame, Dr. George Banky, Dr. Maury Frankel, and Jeff Deegan. Right, thanks to my mate Avi Thelman let's have a listen to a great old clip of Alan Sherman with Herman's Hermits lead singer Peter Noon. I won't tell you how long ago I saw Herman's Hermit sing Mrs. Brown, you Got a Lovely Daughter at Channel 9. Until next week, stay well and COVID safe. L'chaim, I'm Yisrael Chai, and peace. No, 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 not quite. I'm Sherman, Herman. Oh, that's right, you're the
1: fellow who does all
0: those
1: funny
0: songs, isn't it? Yeah, with my magic parody writing pencil. Say, parodies, yeah. Yes. Would you like me to do a fun one for you? Yeah. Give me any song. Uh, How about this one? All right. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. You've got a lovely what was that? Daughter.
1: Girls are sharp as her <laughs> or
0: something Red, 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 Great. Rare. 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 Love me now. She's made it clear enough. It ain't no good to find time. Have a go, Mr. Sherman. Well, it's just the first try. Go on, then. Jack and Jill, they fetched a pail of water. They stumbled on the laces of their shoes. the hill when Jill fell up that hill I called the daily news The well, daily news a girl just fell up a hill what do you mean how she slipped on the bottom that's how
1: it's
0: only a first try
1: that's great how did you do that
0: with my magic parody pencil. So what I did, I just took the British words and changed it to American words. You oh. could do the same thing uh, with an American song, changing it to the British words. Do you happen to know any, many American songs? I don't know any American songs properly. Well, probably the greatest American song that we have. Can you do... La, la, la. What? La, la, la. La, la, la. Yes. La, this la, is la. undoubtedly the most thrilling American song of this generation. Hello, mother. La, la, la. Hello, father. La, 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 la. I am back at San And I'm writing you this letter. Just to say my compound fracture's getting better. No one here knows. Where my trunk is, and my bunk is, where the skunk is, and the food this year's improving. All the little black things in it are not moving. Now, <laughs> oh, we can write an English version of that.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. Here you are. Start with this. Thank okay. Hello, Mater. Hello, Peter. I shall mail this letter later. By well, George, I think he's gone.
1: I am. Good old Eaton. Our athletic teams are almost never
0: beaten. Second verse different from the first. Play rugby. Oh. Where you kick it, then we take a crack at cricket. If you buy a season, season ticket, say it.
1: You could watch me kick it on a sticky wicket. <laughs> is it true about Lady Plinker? <laughs> I hope so. She's a stinker. How is Cedric? Incidentally, does he really keep his roles inside his Bentley?
0: I am enjoying all my studies here with all my third grade buddies. We'll. More things, I am certain. for our new third grade professors, Richard Burton. <laughs>